Welcome everyone to the Joseph Carlson Show. On today's episode, we have a few things to talk about, one of which is what I'm doing with my portfolio. We know that we've been having some red days in the market, which are rare. Just today, I'm down 0.98%, so almost a percent, $2,500. If I look at it overall, I'm still in the green. We're still making progress, but there's a lot of pressure on the stock market, and in particular, tech companies. They're the ones that everybody's telling you to sell out of tech. In fact, there's multiple videos being released every week, like on CNBC, of different portfolio managers and different analysts saying that now is the time to move out of tech. They outline a few different reasons. I'm going to go over their arguments of why we should be selling tech, and I'll explain why I'm not selling a single share of my tech holdings. We're also seeing an increasing amount of criticism directed towards the Fed and their handling of monetary policy. None other than Stanley Druckenmiller has come out today and has harshly criticized the Fed. In part of his harsh criticism, he says, quote, I can't find any period in history where monetary and fiscal policy were this out of step with the economic circumstances. Not one. And in this long form interview with CNBC, he says that the Fed's policies have been, quote, I just think it's totally inappropriate. In his own words, he says it's totally inappropriate. And he brings up different charts and different data and visuals to illustrate the effects that the Fed's policy is having on the economy. And then we also know that on Thursday, one of my biggest holdings, a company I'm very bullish on, Disney, is having their earnings report, where they're going to reveal how they're doing with their streaming business, Disney+, Plus, as well as their parks, their cash flow, their profits, all of that type of stuff. We're going to get a catch up on Disney. Now, I'm a little bit concerned about this earnings report after having seen Netflix's. Netflix stock fell 10% amid disappointing subscriber results. Netflix said that their reason for the slowdown in subscriber growth was because of the pull ahead in 2020, the lighter content slate on the first half of the year. So they're blaming this on all the subscribers they gained in 2020. That's the reason why they're not gaining as many in 2021. Well, on Thursday, we're going to find out if the same thing happens to Disney. Did Disney gain so many subscribers in 2020 that they're going to have a drastic slowdown in 2021? That could be bad for the stock if that happens. We could see a sell-off if Disney has underwhelming subscriber gains or underwhelming subscriber forecasts. So I'll be sharing my thoughts on Disney's situation, how it compares to Netflix, and what I think we'll see on their upcoming earnings report this Thursday. Now let's go ahead and dive right in. We'll start off with this interview of a portfolio manager who he does a good job summarizing all this news we're seeing about the downward pressure on tech. And he explains the various reasons that you should be selling out of tech and why he thinks this sell-off will continue. I think that the sell-off is justified uh, given the meteoric rise that a lot of these stocks exhibited, um, particularly post the the COVID, uh, initial stages of COVID. Um, and, you know, given where we are right now, I mean, there's four real headwinds to, to most uh, areas of tech. So first, he says he thinks the sell off so far is justified, which I think I agree with him. A lot of the companies that raced up over the past year, I think everybody knew that eventually they had come back down to reality. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of tech holdings. But he goes on to explain four different reasons he thinks this sell off will continue and why he thinks there's so much downward pressure on tech stocks. And namely the the fear of higher rates. Number one is the fear of higher rates. While it's true that we have fears of inflation right now that usually lead to an increase in interest rates, we also have the other side of this, where incredible investors like Peter Lynch have openly told people 
to not base your investments off of predicting or forecasting future interest rates. He says it's a waste of time because nobody can accurately predict interest rates. So I think that this is not really the best advice to follow. If you try to base your investments off of predicting interest rates, you're as likely to be wrong as you are right. Tougher comparisons going forward, particularly to those for those that have benefited from uh, COVID. Tougher comparisons going forward, I think, is a very valid concern with tech companies. Many of them did incredibly good in 2020 because of unique circumstances. This is my exact concern with Netflix and Disney. Netflix had such a blowout 2020. It did so well that now it's having a difficult time by comparison in 2021. And I can see the same thing maybe happening with Disney. Disney had an incredible 2020 with their streaming service, Disney Plus. And so comparing that to 2021 might be a little bit more difficult. But I think the concern that tech companies have tough comparables, especially those that did good in 2020, is a very valid concern. Um, corporate tax reform, which is something that isn't being discussed right now, but it will have an impact on tech more so than other areas of the market. The potential for corporate tax reform. I think that's a pretty valid concern as well. Lawmakers are already concerned about how big and powerful tech companies are, and they're looking for ways to control them and tax them. They're trying to do this. So far, they haven't been too successful, but I believe this is a valid concern. And then lastly, for particularly for mega cap tech, I think you know, we're seeing more and more antitrust headwinds starting to pick up as well. And his last concern is that big tech will face the antitrust regulations, which will probably happen down the road. I think these companies will have some form of antitrust regulation. So I do agree with his concern on antitrust. Now, despite his concerns that I believe most of them are valid, we have a chance of interest rates going up, which could potentially hurt tech companies. We have tough comparables. We have continued efforts for regulation and different potential changes in tax law that all could affect tech holdings. And despite all these possibilities, I'm not selling a single share of my tech holdings. I agree that there's some smaller, unprofitable tech startup companies that probably raced up in valuation and they came back down to reality. But overall, I am not selling out of my tech companies. I'm not selling out of my tech holdings. I refuse to do so. Even with all these various concerns, all the different downward pressure on tech, I'm not selling out of my tech holdings. To me, tech is not some passing trend. This isn't some type of gimmick that's going to come and go. It's not something that's going to be around for the next five years and then fizzle out. Tech is the future, the long-term future. And every company that you're investing in will become themselves a version of a tech company or they'll cease to exist over time. You can look at the example, for instance, Disney. Disney's not considered a tech company, but what runs Disney? How does Disney run as a business without being a tech company? Well, first of all, they partner with companies like Salesforce that are the operating system for all the internal operations for their business. So that's how people transfer data. That's how Disney communicates to each other is with Salesforce, a tech company. Disney is reliant on CRMs like Salesforce to be able to communicate. How does Disney Plus work? How do they stream this much content across the globe without a hiccup? Disney Plus runs on AWS, Amazon's hosting. They could not do what they're doing without Amazon. They'd have to use a competing service with another tech company like Microsoft Azure, which they're already doing for different operations in their business. Walt Disney Studio partners with Microsoft Azure on Cloud Innovation Lab. Microsoft and Disney have been working together for some time, building cloud-based workflows for their film industry using Avid software solutions on Azure. So Microsoft and Disney are already partnered together. 
And then of course, we can't forget Google or Facebook. How does Disney actually advertise their service and get it in front of people's eyes? Well, of course, they do it through Google and Facebook. In fact, the Marvel YouTube channel just a couple weeks ago posted a little three-minute trailer of all their different movies, and so far it has 11 million views. 11 million. This is where people go to watch trailers for Disney, as they go on YouTube. So in summary, you're investing in tech companies, whether you like it or not. If you're investing in Disney or Costco or Home Depot or Nike, I promise there are dozens and dozens of tech companies partnered with them in the mix that they're totally reliant on. Tech companies are what's driving the future, and it's not a passing trend. So despite the calls of analysts and all the various concerns about the future, I'm going to remain fully invested in tech, even if we do see a temporary sell-off. And if we do see a sell-off, I'll be buying more. Now, moving on, we have to talk about this this op-ed and this interview with Stanley Druckenmiller. Stanley Druckenmiller is an investor, and he's been doing this for a very long time. He's had his entire career. He was a hedge fund manager. I think he's worth something over $5 billion. So he's made himself very wealthy with investing and running his hedge fund. And so people value his opinion from time to time. He has some insight on the markets, having a lot of experience in it. And he recently wrote an op-ed saying that the Fed is playing with fire, clinging to emergency policy after the emergency has passed, Chairman Powell courts asset bubbles. That's his case, as he believes that the Fed is playing with fire, he believes that they're courting asset bubbles, and he explains so in this interview. So let's go ahead and let him make his case. I can't find any period in history where monetary and fiscal policy were this out of step with the economic circumstances, not one. That's the basic case for Druckenmiller's concern, is that he's looked through history of the United States and all of our fiscal and monetary policy, and he says he's never found a time throughout history where our policy has been this out of step with what's happening with the economy. Druckenmiller goes on to point out how much QE we're doing. QE is quantitative easing. It's where the Fed starts to purchase equities or they purchase bonds primarily to artificially prop up the markets. That's what quantitative easing is. And we employed this strategy after the financial crisis in 2009. But the levels of it that we're doing right now compared to 2009 and beyond 2009 are not even comparable. We're doing so much more now, it makes the levels in 2009 look like a joke. And he points this out, comparing the amount that we're doing now compared to what we did then. In six weeks last spring, um, we did more QE, more more purchase of treasuries than we did the entire time, the nine-year period from 2009 to 2018. In six weeks, a month and a half, we did more quantitative easing than we did the entire time following 2009 for nine years. So an entire nine-year period, we did less QE than we just did in six weeks. That's the comparison. And that's pretty crazy when you consider how bad of a crash the 2009 housing crash was and the financial crisis. He goes on to say that he thinks that this was kind of warranted at the beginning. Our immediate response to the virus was necessary. But we're even doing this after we've mostly recovered from the pandemic. Frankly, Joe, I don't have a problem with that. We were in a black hole. No one knew where we were headed. What I have a problem with is the Fed is expected to do two and a half trillion of QE after after vaccine confirmation and after retail sales um, reached trend and were above trend. So sure, right when the virus came on, 
He thinks that it was kind of necessary and warranted to have this type of aggressive response with this much fiscal and monetary stimulus. The six weeks following the virus was a very scary and unknown time, and it was appropriate for the Fed to jump in that aggressively. But now we have a vaccine. The future doesn't look so unknown. In fact, the economy is recovering. People are spending money above the previous trend level, and we're still expected to do $2.5 trillion in QE. So he's saying that this is where things get a little dicey. Why are we still doing this much QE after most measurements show that the economy is recovering? The black hole didn't occur. That's wonderful. We're all happy. But we're still acting like we're in a black hole. And in fact, uh, the economy accelerating. Now, I like what he does here. He actually comes to this interview with a graph that illustrates the point he's trying to make of how the economy is recovering, but we're still giving out stimulus after the economic recovery. The first visual that he shows is called the U.S. nominal retail sales, and he explains how this graph is applicable. Okay, so if you look at this, this is a chart of retail sales the last 20 years. And as you can see, they grow about 3% a year. And after the last the great financial crisis, it took about six years to get back to trend. If you look at the current recession, it's like nothing we've ever seen. A sharper decline, but then within six months, you were back to to trend level. That's the first thing that he points out. The decline we saw in retail sales after the pandemic was pretty intense. You can see this enormous drop, but then within six months, we were back to trend level. So the recovery was actually very rapid. This was a V-shaped recovery exceeding most analysts and most economists' expectations. They thought it was going to take a lot longer to recover. Well, we recovered very quickly. You see, check one, that's the first stimulus package. That's the one I have no problem with. I think it was the right risk reward, which was right at the bottom. But look at check two and check three. Now, you can't see these checks. For whatever reason, CNBC doesn't show them. But the first stimulus check was right here at the bottom. So that was one that was absolutely necessary. He thinks that that was was needed at the time. But then the next stimulus checks are far after we're already above trend. We've recovered. We're way above trend. Not only are we back to trend, we're now 15% above trend. To put that in perspective, retail sales grow at about 3% a year. So we are five years worth of demand above trends. So like he points out, in 2007, the financial crisis, obviously U.S. nominal retail sales dropped as people were more scared about spending money or going shopping. They didn't have as much money in their pockets to spend. And it took six years to get back to where we were previously, just to recover. Six years of time. In this pandemic, it dropped even further, but it only took six months to recover. And then the amount of stimulus that we've given out has made it so that we're now five years above trend, five years ahead of where we would normally be without a pandemic at all, which is pretty incredible. In fact, if we look at the same visual, the same graph, but on a bigger time scale, all the way back to 1992, you see the same trend. You see the gradual 3% increase in sales per year, a little bit of a hiccup during the 2000.com bubble. And then we see the drop in 2008 during the housing collapse and the financial collapse. And then it took six years to get back up to trend. So that was a good time for economic recovery. And then we have the pandemic with the six month recovery. And then it's spiking upwards like we've never seen before. And this is why he says that he's never seen a time in history where economic policy has been this out of step with the economy. Right as we're doing that, we just put six trillion of new debt on. Again, all enabled by the Fed. These guys could not be doing it. Bond rates would go to a prohibitive level. 
He says that we've added on $6 trillion worth of debt in a record amount of time. And for most of us, it's difficult to visualize with all these big numbers how much we're really spending. Well, this graph right here is one that he references. This is the government expenditures, how much the government is spending compared to our GDP, compared to the economic growth of our economy. As you can see throughout history, we have certain levels of spending compared to our GDP. It's been creeping up a little bit over time. And then it skyrockets, over doubles in 2020. It spikes up multiple times. The massive amount of spending we're doing compared to the size of our economy, of course, it leads to a lot of debt. And this massive amount of debt we have is currently financed at very low interest rates. Interest rates on bonds are very low. But if the interest rate was to creep up a little bit and go up to a normal level, well, that could be problematic for the United States. If 10 years go to 4.9%, which is their normalized projection, the interest expense alone will be close to 30% of GDP every year. That's basically what we just spent on the COVID emergency in the last year. There is no way we can afford to have 30% of all government outlays be, be toward interest expense. So what will happen is the Fed will have to monetize that. When they monetize it, um, I believe it'll have horrible implications for the dollar. And that's why I said in that speech, yes, that I think it's more likely than not within 15 years we lose reserve currency status. Now, I can't say whether or not the U.S. dollar is going to lose reserve currency status. But what I will say is that I do agree with a lot of his concerns. I think they're completely valid. We are spending an enormous amount of money, taking on an enormous amount of debt, despite the unemployment rate going down incredibly fast. We're also seeing evidence that inflation's not just some concern of the future, but it's now looking like a reality. The inflation numbers that came in in April were 4.2%, meaning that we saw 4.2% inflation over the past year. That's the highest it's been in over a decade. And we can see the effects that these concerns are having on the market. The NASDAQ drops 2.5% amid inflation concerns. So investors are concerned about inflation, and we'll see whether or not it's transitory or whether inflation sticks around for the long term. Either way, like I said before, I'm holding on to my tech holdings, and if they drop enough, I'll be buying more of them. Now, moving on, we have to talk about Disney. This is a company that's had a good story so far. They have the story of the recovery play. They're a company that their parks are opening back up. They're gaining their business back with their parks slowly but surely as the virus gets dealt with. And they're also a company that has a growing streaming service, which is an exciting thing for growth investors. So Disney's one of these type of value plays. It's a growth play, as well as it's just a good company. They own a lot of unique properties, and it's a very unique company. So I like Disney. I like the story of it. I like having it in my portfolio. But I do have my concerns with their upcoming earnings report. Netflix, for instance, reported that they had a much slower subscriber gain in 2021 than they did the previous year. It came in under expectations and the stock got crushed, selling off 10% in one day. We could see the same thing happen with Disney if they have underwhelming performance with their Disney Plus subscriber gain. Because I think out of the two narratives and the two stories with Disney, it being a recovery play and it being a streaming play, I think the one that's more important to investors is Disney+. Plus. I think that is the most important story with Disney. If it disappoints with their subscriber gain, I can see investors selling out of it. Having said that, I'm very optimistic about this company. I think it has a great future ahead of it. Not only do they have a lot of good content like The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that's been really well received. We have Raya and the Last Dragon. That's a new movie they just released. And despite it being available for an extra charge on Disney+, Plus, it's still doing well in the box office. People still want to view this content. And then they have Cruella coming out 
which is another movie that, in my opinion, it looks like it's going to be a hit. So in my opinion, although I see the risk of a potential sell-off in Disney, some type of sell-off if we see a subscriber gain miss, I'm not too concerned about it. Overall, looking at the trend, they're gaining subscribers in Disney+, ESPN+, and Hulu. Every single one of their services is gaining subscribers quarter over quarter, and the rest of their business is recovering rapidly. Not only do we see their revenue coming back, but we also see a return in their operating income and their profitability. So we'll see what happens with Disney this Thursday when they release their earnings report. But for me, I plan on holding this company through earnings, and I'll give you an updated opinion on it after their earnings report. Now that's all for this episode. I appreciate you guys for listening. I'll talk to you later this week.